there's going to be wealth. Interest rates are the lowest it's ever been in the Philippines and it's gonna keep getting lower for longer. That is just going to help generate so much more wealth. The quality of education plus the education provided by the workforce is also going to make Philippines so much better productivity per capita income wise. The infrastructure that we're seeing in the next 12 months to be completed is unprecedented in Philippine history. We've never seen this much infrastructure and that's going to benefit 60% of the GDP. Hi guys, this is Molik. Welcome to the Future Proof Leader Podcast. Today, I sat down with the founder and CEO of Lichu Property Consultants, David Lichu. David is considered a leading commercial real estate broker in the Philippines. He has arranged the lease of more than 1 million square meters of office space and sold more than $2 billion of real estate. In 2018, he was recognized with MVP Bossing Award, which celebrates Filipino entrepreneurial spirit and success. In this episode, he shares his insights about the future of real estate market in post-COVID world and why real estate is still the best investment option. We also discussed his entrepreneurial journey and how he got to the top. But we started the conversation talking about the time when he had hit rock bottom, when he got kicked out of high school. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Malik. Thank you for having me. Of course, you know, you are uh, considered now the leading commercial real estate broker in the Philippines. You are at the top of your game. But uh, what I gather is that uh, that was not always the case. Uh, you went through a rough patch during your teenage years uh, to the point where you got kicked out of the high school. Tell us about that episode. Well, so I'm a product of many crises, economic crises. I was born in 72, the year when Marcos declared martial law. And 10 years after that, you know, the economy just started to fall apart. There was a lot of economic havoc for Philippines. When people look at the charts and talk about economic havoc, to many people, to analysts, it's just numbers and, and charts and, and graphs, right? But for people like us, it meant that, you know, we had three cars and a and a business that's thriving to like no cars, no TV, no sofa, no couch. We had no savings. We were super negative in debt. Mm -hmm. And my parents were, they were in their late thirties, early forties when they, when they hit that uh, crisis. And my father had to go through that process, the psychological process of, uh, you know, having his uh, shop burned down to the ground because it was part of the mall. Hmm. He had a shop there that uh, that was pretty much the core bread and butter uh, business, and uh, that burned down. Together with it, our financial stability, and together with that, his psychology, and um, all the all the hardship that we went through crawling out of that. And we were, my parents were so much in debt, and uh, fortunately, we had wealthy uh, relatives who pitched in. Uh, and made sure that we went to school and they made sure that we didn't starve. So we never, we never got to save that much to last that long. And we took the Jeep and the tricycle everywhere we went. My dad dealt with the business and what was left of it, which is pretty much debt. And we had to pay creditors and suppliers. My mom started doing very menial things like, uh, like selling food to office buildings, right? So every time I see people uh, selling food in the office, 
regardless of where I go, whether it's my office or somebody else's office, it brings me back to those years when that was my mom and that kid there was me for a few years. So it seems like uh, you went through some tough years. Uh, cool. So I'm trying to get to that point of what trouble did you cause in the high school <laughs> to get kicked out? So I, I, was, I was going through this process of, uh, my, my, my family is going through this process. So my parents fought every day. And because of that, um, you know, we grew up very, very difficult with economic conditions as well as the emotional havoc that my parents were going through translated down to us, right? So nobody in the house got along. And this is what many people forget when you read charts about economic crises, right? You just think, oh, they're losing money. Oh, they lost their car. Oh, they lost their house. But actually deeper than that is they're losing, you know, people are losing their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, we went through very hard emotional times and we never got along. We always fought each other. And the funny thing was we never talked about it. To anybody mm -hmm. like we went to school and it was normal and people wouldn't know that we're going through this massive uh, upheaval emotionally at home and I moved from being in the front of the class because of my alphabetical order I happened to be in the front of the class uh, and then I got moved to the back row of the class and that wasn't good enough so they had me face the wall so the whole class was behind me and I was facing the wall. The teacher was behind me and I was facing the wall. And uh, when that wasn't enough, I started holding class in the hallway. So I, I did that for, for a few months in school. And then uh, a, a lot of that because I was emotionally uh, un, unstable uh, through my high school. And that's why after doing a lot of things like, you know, you know, I, I'd get picked on or, 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 you know, we'd get into fights or it's because I can't study because I don't know how to study um, or because I just decided to uh, draw. So I, my expression was to draw and, and everything that I drew was very dark and everything that I wrote about because I, I, I was told that I would write, I, I was one of the better writers in school, so I would write, but everything that I wrote was very dark, and I didn't know, I didn't know those things, right? Uh, until I got kicked out, and then on the day that I got kicked out, the guidance counselor, who was a priest, Jesuit priest, calls me in and says, hey, you know, we got all your drawings from when you were young, from when you were kindergarten, all the way to now. We have all those records, and you have a problem, right? And, and I say, okay, thanks. Oh, but by the way, we're kicking you out. <laughs> so I go, thanks a lot. You know, I have a problem, you know, and then you're kicking me out. Thanks. Anyway, so, and, and I guess that, um, that uh, and I wasn't the only kid going through that. You know, there were many of us. In fact, two classes worth of kids were kicked out that year. And wow. we all found, found ourselves in the same school, which is a Montessori lane in Pigivara and I, I thank that school for giving me a home when nobody else granted me a home. And I only told my parents a week before school started that I got kicked out of Savior. And, and during what did those they times say? I got, uh, my father freaked out, my mother said, okay, you don't have a school yet. I have a friend who has the same problem, you know, their kid got kicked out and they had no place to go and there was this place that would accept uh, 
last minute. And so I, I went to that school, took the exam, I passed, and I, uh, I went to that school. And, uh, and just to show you how concerned I was, I took the entrance exam, and I got a 92 in the score. Uh, you and got your act together. No, that's when I said, uh oh, you know, this is a problem. <laughs> so I never got 92 in my life. I never got anything more than 76, 77, unless it was PE or essay writing, you know. So, kind of a wake up call for you. And it seems like uh, right after that, you started getting your act together. Uh, and very quickly, from what I understand, you decided that, uh, you know, you want to be somebody. When did you start your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I, I grew up in a family business, so ever since I was young, I, uh, we all worked, all of us worked, whether in good times or bad, every weekend we would be in the store. Every summer day we would be in the store. I never saw my parents rest except uh, January 1, uh, Good Friday, Holy Thursday, and Christmas Day. Every other day of the week, there was no such thing as being on leave, right? As a business owner, there was no such thing. And the entire clan was like that, you know? Small business, big business, they all worked every day. I guess the, the biggest turning point in my life was when I, from graduating high school, uh, I was able to get accepted in a place called CRC, which is now called University of Asia and the Pacific. And that was the only school where they had entrepreneurial management as a course. And it was the very first course for entrepreneurs in college. And the whole mm. thesis was, can you teach entrepreneurship or is it nurtured from economic havoc and from scarcity? Because as they say, uh, scarcity is the mother of invention. And so they had the first school. And statistics wise, they said that the best entrepreneurs are kickouts. And so they said, oh, this guy, he passed the entrance exam barely. He's got the worst grades that we've seen. He's a kick out from two different schools. Well, one school and then barely passed the second school. He's got all the qualifications for being an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> he went through economic and then and then and then he they interviewed me. You know, it's like, oh my god. I went to UP, took the exam. And nobody bothered me, and I got one letter saying, thank you, but no thanks. I went to the Ateneo exam, right? And, you know, that was a, I can't forget that day, because it was a big room full of people hurriedly filling the exam forms. And I was like, half the time, I was like staring out the window saying, wow, this campus is so beautiful. Look at all the trees. <laughs> and then he was UANP with no deadline for, you know, they didn't have a real time time limit for filling the exam. So they gave me a lot of time to fill up the exam form. And then they called me and said, I, we want to know you more. And that is the first lesson in terms of looking beyond the numbers. And people are people. They're not just numbers in a chart. They're not just statistics and you gotta scratch the surface. And that's for anything, whether it's commodities or, or stock charts, there are stories behind those numbers. And you, we have to find out what's the story behind those numbers because sometimes those things pay off, you know? And 
I wasn't special. There were two classes of the first two batches of entrepreneurial management in CRC. And, and we, were all, we all had one thing in common. We were all guys and we were all kickouts from every school in the Philippines. Entrepreneurial management taught me how to aspire to be an entrepreneur just like my, my class. But the one thing nice about CRC UNP is that they, they bother to find out what goes on behind the numbers. And that's, I think, what molded me to be better. And, and uh, that fixed a lot of the things that were wrong with me uh, in the past, growing up in this economic havoc environment. You know, between the mentorship from the mentors I had, and it's one of the few schools in the world that actually assigned mentors to help coach people through school. And second is the, the, the spiritual environment of Opus Dei there, actually gave me an environment, plus the, the Thomistic philosophy that, that was ingrained in us. So I was able to mar marry all that. And I realized early on that, that, you know, this is, I've moved from a very bad place of being a kick out and could have been a real failure in my life to like, wow, I got so lucky with this one chance to get into this proper school and I can't mess that up. And, and fortunately, so many people helped me to, to become that. You know, very inspirational story, David, because uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast or watching it, if they have been kicked out of the high school, you know, don't uh, feel despair. You can be as successful as my friend here, David Lichu. So thanks for sharing that. But, you know, one, one question um, that I have is obviously when I see kids of entrepreneurs pursuing their dreams, they end up joining the family business. And it seems like before everything went down the hill, your family, your parents did have a successful business. Why not go into that business? Why did you choose real estate? It, it took us 12 years to crawl out and, and have economic stability from the debt hole that we were in as a family. So we, we really didn't have money by the time we graduated. But again, fortune, you know, I was so lucky to graduate in 1994. And that was the second year of a boom that started in 1992 in the Philippines. And the 92 to 97 boom was the first boom that the Philippines had in 30 years. Can you imagine? 30 years. So the previous 30 years was what we call the lost generation of the Philippines. But this 92 to 97 boom was the first boom. And the two biggest industries where you can make a lot of money quickly with, without any capital was the stock market and the property market. And I thought being a broker would be would be more sustainable because everybody needs real estate, right? And uh, it's one of the basic needs of man, you know, food, shelter, clothing, real estate is shelter, real estate, you know? And, um, and so I thought that was more sustainable than being the stock market. And, uh, and also I, I couldn't psychologically ride the ups and downs of the stock market. Um, so that's what led me to real estate. And I was again, lucky to have friends say to me, a friend of mine named Ramon Cuervo III, he and his family has been in real estate all these years. And he and I just crossed paths and, and I said hello. And he said hello. And he said, 
what are you doing? If you're not doing anything after graduation, why don't you work with us? Wow. And so, and so I, I decided to say, okay, fine, you know, I'll, I'll work. I, I didn't have a salary. I just earned from the deals that I did in their, in their company. And um, I guess what made me different from, from most of the people who worked there was that uh, I, I, I was a Chinese with a very entrepreneurial plan and those work values were brought into that environment. I had the Opus Dei, Thomistic philosophy driven kind of um, worldview and that really helped me um, stabilize and, and improve the work ethic and um, I, I did I did well in that environment and and the family the Cuervo family nurtured me a lot and so I owe them a whole lot you know from from the, the Ramon Cuervo Jr. Ramon Cuervo III, Jose Mari Cuervo, Monse Cuervo that, that whole family uh, really helped me a lot. Well, you know, that's a good point. Uh, when you come out of school, you have a dream to make it big in a certain industry, but you don't get there overnight. I mean, you have to pay your dues and you have to find mentors like the one that you found. And uh, even though they may not pay you enough, you just have to go through that phase where they are investing in your learning, right? Uh, and that's what you did. And I remember our first meeting was in 2006, and I met you at this... Uh, very old and abandoned warehouse, which you were trying to sell to BPO companies to set up a call center operations there. And I, I vividly remember that because uh, you were significantly younger than, yes, I had a lot more hair and I was significantly younger than as well. Uh, but what I remember about you then is that uh, you came across as somebody who was a hustler, you know, somebody who had big dreams, but you were just starting your own business at that time. And I can sense a sense of anxiety or not being sure of what you are doing. If you were to go back to that time, did you know that you are going to make it so big in real estate in the country? Or you just wanted to make a living and see where it goes? I, I guess I've learned from many people that to be successful, you have to have that desire to be the best in what you do. And like what um, Secretary Dominguez quotes often, Heraclitus, you know, the only permanent thing is change. And Andy Grove said that very well in, when he wrote the book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Hmm. And so I, I also learned from many people that sincerity is so rare in business. And if you just have to look at the global financial crisis, was driven by people who were very insincere about the way they conduct business, right? And I guess sincerity together with competence will go a long way for people. Sincerity, hard work, and competence. Those are three very rare things in a person. And I, I remind myself that part of the reason why people trust me and my colleagues is because we have these three things in place. Whether good times or bad, whether we make a big deal or a small deal, we are consistent throughout. And we remind ourselves that, especially during the good times, because the good times come and um, people lower their guard 
and money plays in the minds of people all the time, right? And so actually the biggest struggle is with ourselves. The constant struggle to be grounded and to be real when people are not and everything else around you is not, you know. No, I attest to that. I mean, I've known you now for 15 years and uh, your approach to how you deal with your clients, your responsiveness and your sincerity has not changed. I'm sure COVID-19, David, must have changed quite a few things for you. Could you take us through how has this crisis changed the real estate industry? What are some of the trends that are coming out of this crisis that you will see continuing to happen over the next 10 years? I think we've had a very incredible 30 years, right, for the Philippine economy. And since then, it's taken us 12, 15, 20 years to fix a lot of those structural problems. And today, 2021, there are many problems that have been fixed in the Philippines that will propel the Philippines to a much better road to prosperity in the next 20 years. In the last 20 years, we doubled our per capita income from $1,500 to $3,000 per capita today. And in all likelihood, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to double that also. But the 3,000 mark is an inflection point where so much wealth and the scale of the population, 24 years average age for 110 million people, is going to make profound changes faster. Coupled with that is the rapid progression in global technology, in information. The development of technology will just help the Philippines adapt to the new environment for the next century. That's exciting. So actually the people born in the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years are the luckiest because so many structural changes and problems were solved both locally in the Philippines and in the world. And that's why real estate will be one of the most stable appreciating assets uh, in the next 50, 100 years. There's going to be wealth, Interest rates are the lowest it's ever been in the Philippines, and it's going to keep getting lower for longer. And uh, that is just going to help generate so much more wealth. The, ed the quality of education plus the education provided by the workforce is also going to make Philippines so much better uh, productivity per capita income-wise. The infrastructure that we're seeing in the next 12 months to be completed in the Philippines in the next 12 months is unprecedented in Philippine history. We've never seen this much infrastructure as we're going to see in the next 12 months completed. And that's going to benefit 60% of the GDP of the, of the Philippine population. And that's, again, it's just going to be a faster road to recovery out of COVID crisis. And the big kicker for me is overseas Filipino money not the money that they've been sending here for the last 40 years, because that's all guilt money. You know, what do I mean by guilt money? $30 billion of money being sent here to the Philippines to pay for tuition fees, medical bills, insurance, groceries, a relative calling you in the US and saying, hey, I don't have money for this. Can you please send me $10, $20, $100, $200? 
And the relatives in the U.S. are saying, okay, fine. You help my mom and dad, I'm going to help you. You helped me when I was two years old, I'm going to help you. That's guilt money. But of the 10 million Filipinos out there, there's easily half a million very successful multimillionaire Filipinos that will send capital to the Philippines. Not just guilt money, but capital, enterprise, businesses, and they will connect knowledge, workforce, skill sets that were untapped in the Philippines before. And they're going to send real capital development uh, experience into the Philippines to make things a much more efficient place. You can't imagine all the digital banking platforms that are coming, uh, the online platforms for trade to make things easier, the amount of people who are married to South Koreans, to Taiwanese, to Indonesians, to Vietnamese, to Indians, <laughs> uh, and, how, and how that has translated to technology transfer, wealth transfer, relationship transfer, and bridges built across peoples and languages that were never, that was never happening before. That's happening now. I can see you are very bullish about real estate, obviously. Uh, but let's, let's talk about some numbers. If somebody invested in the Philippine real estate market, a million, a million pesos, let's say, in 2010, what kind of return would they have received by now? The average, the KGAR, so the compounded annual returns for real estate in Bonifacio was 14% a year. 14% a year, 15% a year, every year for 20 years. Wow. And that's just Bonifacio. If you look at 1978, when Ayala Alabang first launched, the property prices there was 170 to 200 pesos per square meter. Okay. In the last 40 years, that has gone to about 200, anywhere from 130, 140,000 pesos to 200,000 pesos per square meter in Ayala, Alabama. If you look at Forbes, Forbes, somewhere in the early 1960s, when, when Forbes first launched, again, they were only talking about 100, 120 pesos per square meter, and today it's about 450,000 pesos per square meter, long-term, and in the last 50, 60 years, we've had more crisis years than good years, right? And look at that average growth rate. I get the point about Ayala Alabang. I get the point about Forbes. But those are beyond reach for most Filipinos, most people. So if I were to look at the next Ayala Alabang or the next Forbes, which is significantly cheaper today and has a potential to follow the same exponential growth over the next 20, 30 years. What are these places that our audience, our listeners should be looking into? Where would you put your money? I, I would put my money in recurring income assets. So invest in property that is uh, recurring in income. So um, something that you can own and lease. If you have big enough of a war chest, then you can put it in your home, you put it in your uh, in land banking. Land banking is buying something that will not generate any cash. You only benefit from the cash if you sell it or if you borrow against it. And then I would put it in a combination of, of uh, city property and peripheral property. So by city, meaning Makati, Bonifacio, Ayala Labang, um, and then after that, go out and my thesis is 
tourism will be very big for Philippines. It will be the biggest industry in the Philippines in the next 10 years. And no other place has got tremendous potential as Palawan. And in Palawan, I would go San Vicente, El Nido, Coron, and, um, and Puerto Princesa. And prices there were very, very low 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And, and the returns have been fantastic today. And the future is still brighter because Palawan has got infrastructure like never before. And it will be our answer to Bali, our answer to Phuket. No, I agree. I love that part of the world. I have a question about the buzzword that everybody's talking about, uh, work from home. You know, I read an article recently in Wall Street Journal that said uh, JP Morgan Chase, one of the largest banks and one of the largest lessees in New York City, is subletting almost 100,000 square meter of space because they think that work from home is not just a temporary model, it will continue to be the modus operandi over the next 10, 20 years. Do you see that happening here in the Philippines where these large office buildings that you see in the CBDs throughout the country will slowly start vacating because uh, employers are finding out that their employees can work from home? Well, in the same breath that JP Morgan said that, uh, they actually reaffirmed this commitment to rebuild uh, their new headquarter office. So I think this whole work from home 100% of JP Morgan would be temporary until they finish a new headquarter office. Uh, in the meantime, that they don't need their offices today, they've, they've worked to sublease that. And maybe they will change their mind midway through that point. No? Okay. Um, we, we service the largest tenants in this country. Um, and all of them have renewed their leases. There have been contractions of 800,000 square meters through COVID. Uh, ever since March of 2020 to today, the exact number is 820,000 square meters of space shed by companies. Half of that by Pogo companies because they couldn't fly in and operate and that the government and the Pogo sector had a dispute. But the other half are BPOs with 84,000 square meters of, of space contracted and the rest from multinational companies. That 400,000 square meters is a very small number compared to the 13, 14 million square meters of total built up space in the Philippines. So if work from home was a big driver and companies said they don't need their space anymore, they would have shed millions and millions of square meters, but that's not the case. In the last 12 months, 15 months, the, every client has renewed their lease, except for a very, very small proportion. It's negligible. And uh, I think work from home will go back to office. The other point I want to pick your brain on, David, is there was another interesting article in Wall Street Journal, in fact, today that said that uh, in 2020, New York City had a net negative population growth because uh, it saw more people moving out of the city than the people coming in. And that's the first time after a very long period of time. 
Uh, and it's not just New York City. There are many cities in the U.S. who are experiencing that, where people are moving to the suburbs, to nearby towns, because now they can work from home, at least in the U.S. Is that a trend that is happening in the Philippines also, where people are willing to now go to surrounding suburbs of Metro Manila or surrounding cities of Metro Manila versus being very close to Makati or BGC? Yes, it is a trend. It's, it's a global trend, actually, where the wealthy who are in their you know, condominium building, the condominium building gets locked down because one guy in the, in the, in the whole building gets COVID. You know, like, like in certain condominiums, if somebody has COVID in your floor, you cannot leave that floor. The whole floor cannot vacate it. And the security will just bring food to you and, and all these other things. It's kind of driving people insane. So uh, a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm going to go and finally use my Tagaytay Highlands um, uh, membership. And so the people at Tagaytay Highlands who run it have told me that they have never seen members in 20 years and all of a sudden they're here every day yeah. or all of a sudden they're using their villa in highlands that they haven't used before and uh and then and that's why batangas bay has become so popular batangas bay is where Punta fuego kawayan tali and in 15 months since uh covid started in the philippines property prices in this geography have tripled in value 300 percent you know uh and uh we have never seen volumes the way we have done today and these are not small deals these are one million to three million dollar deals right without the house sometimes with the house but most of the time without the house and why is that because people feel locked out and second is that what used to be a three four hour journey has now become one one hour, 45 minutes, two hours. And that has made things a lot easier. I'm excited about places like La Union, like Bataan, like Subic, like Clark, because then the tourism potential in those geographies are tremendous, tremendous. And they're very underdeveloped today, undervalued today, but the infrastructure is being built right now. And so places like La Union, Places like that will be great, great places. All right. Well, hey, uh, David, uh, we are almost down to the last few minutes on this podcast. And uh, that means it's time for the rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. I'll, 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 I promise you I will keep it uh, I'm scared. As, as simple as possible. As much as I would like to ask so many amazing questions to you personally, <laughs> I'll keep it very professional here. So let's start with the first one. Okay. What has been your biggest fear? And uh, have you had a chance to overcome it? And if so, how did you do that? I guess my biggest fear is uh, war. I mean, I've seen so much war stories and books and all that. And I would shudder to have that. Um, that will set humanity back so many decades, if not centuries, if we went to war. and. You know, this part of the region has been war-free for 60 years, but the Middle East has not. Some parts of Latin America have not. Africa has not. And uh, let's just hope that it doesn't spread and that we are able to solve those problems. But war will bring out the worst in humanity also. So that's really my genuine fear. How about... Um 
the biggest mistake you have made, and I know personally so many that you have, but uh, <laughs> the one you can share on this platform, uh, what has been your biggest mistake and what have you learned from it? I guess I could have spent more time with my children. And I console myself that, you know, my parents went through hardship, a lot of hardship, and therefore they spent a lot, a lot less time with us children, you know? And I have spent more time with my children than my parents have had with us. And I'm doing what I can so that they, my children can spend more time with their children. And what would you advise your 18-year-old self if you had to live your life all over again? I know the changes that you would have made, but uh, the ones you can share on this platform. <laughs> would you have lived your life differently? No. No, I wouldn't change a thing. I would... Uh... You know, I've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and I would not change a single day of it. I have some regrets, very few. Um, I wish, like I said, I wish I spent more time with my kids, but also more time with uh, friends. But at the end of the day, I have done what I could, and those were the best decisions I could have made. You know, I sacrificed time with my kids for things that were very important that would benefit them in the long run, you know? And I just hope one day they will appreciate that sacrifice, you know? What are your favorite uh, quotes? I know you quoted a couple of people early on, but uh, are there quotes that you live by in your life? Um, yeah, there, there's one by uh, some philosopher, Greek philosopher said, you cannot give what you don't have. That's one uh, which we always, I always remind people. I guess that uh, you have to work on yourself and a lot of that involves reflection. You cannot give what you don't have, but uh, you have to know what you don't have and then build on it. But that takes a lot of reflection. And that's unfortunately what many people don't do nowadays. The process of reflecting and understanding what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And what could I have done better? How about uh, books? Any books that have played a big role in your life that you keep going back to? Yeah, um, Seven Habits, uh, Good to Great, um, The Giving Tree. I love that, yeah. And then uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. That's good. That's a good collection. You know, Giving Tree, I didn't even know that book existed until my daughter was born and it became her favorite book. And I remember reading to her almost for a month every night because that's what she wanted me to read. How about if you had to write your own biography one day, how would you title that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, Life is War. There it is. Life is War. It's a wow. quote that I, I, I always uh, remind myself that I share with friends and I share with colleagues all the time. Life is war. What does that mean? I guess the biggest enemy is oneself. You, the struggle is not with other people. The struggle is with oneself. How to stay grounded, how to become better, how to remind ourselves to be the same person regardless of abundance or privation. I mean, one thing that struck me losing all that wealth growing up, I mean, you know, when I was 
nine years old, 10 years old, we had three cars. And at that time, there's so many poor people proportionally, right? And we were one of the few families with three cars. And from three cars, for the next 12 years, we had zero cars, zero everything, zero luxuries. We didn't have TV, we didn't have radio, we didn't have, you know, and then we built that over time and a lot of people gave us stuff. They gave us their old ref, they gave us their old TV, their old um, cassette recorder. And one thing amazing about that was, despite the pravity, friends were real. I went to school and I had real friends who didn't mind what we had or didn't have. The, 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 whether I had the same, you know, a cheap shirt from Divisoria or a, or a polo Ralph Lauren shirt, it didn't change the way they looked at us. Mm -hmm. I, I, they went home in their Benzes and they lived in their mansions and I went home in using tricycles and Jeeps and that didn't change friendship, you know? And how to sustain that over time and whether you'd be the same person to the one who has and the one who has not. Good point. And now, I mean, think about the life and how it turns around. You are driving Benzes and you are living in big mansions. So kudos to you, David. Uh, what an inspiring life story you have. I am a big fan of what you have done. And I'm happy that you got kicked out of the high school because um, if that didn't happen, maybe you would have taken another way to pursue your career goals. So I'm super happy. Thank God for that school to kick you out so that we have a very successful entrepreneur with us. David, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being part of this podcast. Molek, thank you very much for having me. It's really an honor to be sharing the platform with you. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Molek again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with David Lichu. If you would like to listen to more of these inspiring conversations with global leaders, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when I publish the next episode. Until next time, stay healthy and stay safe.